Welcome to Anesthesia Deconstructed, science, politics, realities. Listen in as medical professionals join industry expert Mike McKinnon to discuss the latest science and medical advancements, the effects of our political climate, and the realities of today's changing healthcare environment. Let's get started with your host, Mike McKinnon. Today on the podcast, we're excited to have Mr. Scott Becker, JDCPA. He's a 1989 Harvard Law School graduate, author of four books, and a leader in the healthcare profession. As a partner in a national law firm of McGuire Woods, Scott Becker provides legal and strategic services exclusively in the area of healthcare. In addition to all that, he runs Becker's Healthcare, which is the go-to source for healthcare decision makers and one of the fastest growing media platforms in the industry with over 3.4 million subscribers. Welcome to the podcast, Mr. Becker. It is our honor to have you here. Well, thank you so much, Mike. We appreciate you having me. Thank you, sir. So tell us a little about your journey uh, into law and your background. Sure. So great question. And, and when I see some of the questions you've posed, I feel so non-direct and so non-linear. So I, I ended up in law school. Goodness, I grew up in a community where the concept was you had three choices. You could be a doctor, a lawyer, or an accountant. Those were the three choices. I ended up wanting to be in business and slash an accountant and then went to the University of Illinois as an undergraduate, which is in the middle of the country, Champaign-Urbana. Ended up applying to law school and doing sort of double business major in college, finance and accounting. Applied to law school, applied to business school, inadvertently got accepted to Harvard Law School, so ended up in law school. But it was sort of a very secondary choice, but one of those kind of things where once you got into Harvard Law School, it was hard to turn down, so went to Harvard Law School. It wasn't some great plan or design. It sort of inadvertently ended up there. It's crazy. And I mean, Harvard Law School is huge. It's, a, it's where people want to go. So once you get the acceptance, it's not like you can turn it down. It, it, and that's really how it worked. Like, I came from a family. My, my parents are wonderful people, and they struggled in that. The company my father worked for went broke when we were in high school. So he ended up having to find a new profession, new job, new business. And sort of they, to their great credit, I had a chance to go to another law school on a total scholarship. And my parents, to their great credit, were like, no, 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 no. We'll find a way to make this work. And so thus, I ended up at Harvard Law School. And sort of as you said, I had no visions of going to Harvard Law School. It ended up being a wonderful, wonderful experience. I had the chance to be a teaching assistant with Barack Obama in one of my classes. People like that, much brighter than myself. It was a fascinating experience. And I give a lot of credit to my parents, who basically stepped up when they really didn't have the finances to do so, and said, we'll help you do this. You got into Harvard, we'll go. So it was a great experience. That's amazing. I mean, it's amazing when parents take that much, you know, put that much work into their children to give them the best opportunity. And that's basically what happened in your case. It's really true. And how did you end up getting interested in healthcare and healthcare law? You know, it, it's it's so funny because each of these questions end up being somewhat inadvertent. So I practiced my first few years after law school at a large firm. And like many people to the first few years of law school practicing in a large firm, it was just, you know, 2,500 hours a year of billable time. It was sort of very, very challenging, great firm, but brutal. I was kind of burnt out. And sort of the one lesson I came away with, and I started to do some healthcare corporate work, was that if I was going to practice for the long run, I had to sort of figure out what I wanted to do. And so I ended up joining a firm that had, quote unquote, a healthcare department. And healthcare departments were different than the typical departments. Most departments and law firms are built around a specialty, like litigation or corporate work or securities work or malpractice work, whatever they are. 
healthcare was built differently. It was built as an industry group. So the great thing about it is we, you had the chance to explore, do I want to do transactional work? Do I want to do litigation? Do I want to do regulatory work? You could choose amongst those groups. So I sort of inadvertently ended up in healthcare department because it gave me the option to sort of figure out what I wanted to do. And I ended up focusing on practice in sort of the business side of healthcare. And that's where we, where we evolved through this. And that was sort of how I ended up in healthcare. It wasn't because of, you know, I wish I could say that I was like Jonas Salk and wanted to solve, you know, create penicillin and solve healthcare problems or, 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 or treat polio or fix cancer, or whatever it is. It wasn't that. It was nothing that was altruistic. It was really me trying to find myself at the age of 28. And, and, I, and I tell my kids, whenever they're trying to figure out careers and they're so worried about it, I say, oh, my God, your father did fine. And I couldn't figure out until I was 28, 30. You know, and, and I think that's not atypical. I think that's really common. And so basically, healthcare gave you the opportunity to explore a whole bunch of different so- options. It was a huge umbrella for you and opened it up. It, that's exactly right. And when people are so scared to make choices, I was able to make the choice. I was like, okay, it's 20% of the economy. I'm not nearing myself so much. But ultimately in life, you have to narrow yourself to do well. So it, it, it is what it is. It ended up being a great, especially great area. Oh, that makes total sense. And it's interesting. I think a lot of our listeners will not know that about law and, and how that works under an umbrella with so many different options within healthcare. So that'll be interesting for people listening that may have an interest in the future. 100%. And then, you know, you developed this amazing resource, which I've been reading for years, um, Becker's Healthcare, which is an umbrella organization to which you have Becker's ASC, Becker's Hospitals, CFOs, um, the whole thing. It's a, it's a large consortium of stuff with a lot of employees. You guys are seeing like 1.8 million views a month over 3 million subscribers. I mean, it's huge. Tons of people to your conferences. I know you just finished one. Uh, how did you end up going from that to creating this huge resource, which, I mean, it's literally millions of people are relying upon? Sure. So it really happened in two sort of core steps. The first step was early on, we're in our 27th year of one of our conferences. It's in the Surgery Center area. And I was trying to build a name in healthcare law as, as a lawyer who's a leading lawyer in an area. So we started doing a very simple newsletter around surgery centers and simple conferences around surgery centers, really to be at the intersection of the world of healthcare surgery centers and law. And, and, and it started to go nicely, sort of unexpectedly, almost like deciding to be a lawyer, decided to be in healthcare. Unexpectedly, it started, started to go well. People started to be attracted to it. We started to be able to attract audiences. And it was really a pleasure and a lot of fun. At some point, I... It, the thing I've been able to do, even though I've made some nonlinear decisions, is once I've made those decisions, I've been able to sort of recognize patterns and double down on what seems to be working. At some point, and the great credit goes to Jessica Cole, our CEO, and a lot of the editorial leadership in our team, at some point I started hiring people directly into that company to expand that company, meaning Becker's Healthcare. And so about 12 years after really starting it, I was outsourcing everything to that point about until about 15 years ago, 12 years after I started it, we started to hire full-time employees, and, and we started to expand. We were just in surgery centers to begin with. We grew into two different areas at that point, hospitals and health systems, and orthopedics and spine. Um, and then finally, you fast forward about five to seven years ago, we got into the health IT area. So it's really four core specialties, hospitals and health systems, health IT, surgery centers and spine. And then within those, there's different different publications and sectors in those four, but that's where we ended up. But it ended up being sort of 
started it for legal marketing purposes and grew into real business. It's pretty amazing. I mean, you started this essentially at a time when the internet was in its infancy. So it took some vision to move it from this newsletter you created into what is now this huge online content creator with a lot of information that's accessible for everybody. Well, no, thank you. And in vision, I don't think of it as great vision. I think of it as, I I like the compliment, but I think of it differently. We got into this and we're just doing some small things. And as we grew into the hospital sector, there's a magnificent publication in the hospital sector called Modern Healthcare, which was the great print publication in healthcare. There's also a great print publication in surgery centers at that time called Outpatient Surgery, and there was another one called the Surgery Center. And what essentially happened was we didn't have the resources to win in print. You know, starting a print publication is, you know, a very expensive endeavor. You have to print it, you have to publish it, you have to mail it, you need all the writers and so forth. So we made a decision early on, and this was the smart part of it, but it wasn't a vision. It was, oh my God, we can't win in those areas. We can't be the best print. It's just too expensive. And I needed the resource. I was funding it myself. And so we ended up deciding we would try and be top in online publications and top in events. And that was really the direction of the company. So we were able to focus very clearly, almost on necessity, not out of brilliance and not out of vision, but out of necessity. We can't win there. Let's pick things we could win at. Right, that makes sense. And also hard work. I mean, that's the other side of it, right? It's not just a. It's just not just that you fell into it. It's more that you put the effort in and the work in, because it certainly was bootstrapped by you guys. It, it, a lot of work, and you know, game changers was, you know, in the first couple of years, I started hiring full time people. We must have hired ten or fifteen, and, and sort of sorted them out to be left with several magnificent people, and those people have really been. You know, there's only, you know, what, what I've learned in life is nothing gets done without teams. So whatever you do, nothing great gets done without teams. Anybody who says differently is either extraordinary or a liar. And for me, the difference maker in my law practice and in this business was hiring and developing great teams to go with having a plan and developing a direction once we sort of clarified the direction. All right. Find the right people, put them in the right positions and give them the ability to take ownership. It's really true. And now you guys are just coming off of, you mentioned it, your 26th annual meeting for the ASC side, which is your oldest one. How many people did you have there? And I just want people to get a sense of how huge these meetings, I mean, people should attend is what I'm trying to tell them. Sure. So we have our core business model. I mean, the core way we reach our audiences on the meeting side is we have two big health system meetings a year, two big health IT meetings a year, and two big surgery centers meetings a year. A big surgery center meeting might be 1,500 people. So it's not it's not thousands. Our big hospital meeting is 5,000 people. But even in our surgery center meeting, which is in its 26th year, 1,500 people, but highly focused on the business of surgery centers. And then we try and have this concept where lots of sessions to learn and then a handful of fun keynote sessions at the meeting. So at this meeting, we had people like Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank, Randy Zuckerberg, who's sort of a famous radio personality and the sister of Mark Zuckerberg, a terrific woman leader and speaker. Um, Sugar Ray Leonard, the boxer who is just magnificently fun to have in person, just a pleasure of a person. And then we had Tucker Carlson, the the Fox TV show host. uh, And we try and be completely nonpartisan. So Tucker Carlson spoke at this meeting. Our last meeting, the health IT meeting, Hillary Clinton spoke at. You know, former Secretary of State Clinton. So we try and be totally nonpartisan, 
But we do try and make this mantra in all of our meetings of teach. And so lots of learning, lots of education, lots of networking, plus entertain. So we try and have fun keynotes. So it's, it's really become a labor of love and a great team supports all of it. Yeah, meetings like that are really where you get an opportunity to interact with those who are just as interested as you are in that sector. That's where the experts are going to be. To put all this together has just been a huge undertaking for you and your team. And, uh, you know, I I, I want to say it now so the people hear it, that I talk to people all over the country and people are very thankful that you have created this resource. I mean, they don't know the process behind it. And I've only recently learned all of the information between how long it was and all the different functions. But it is pretty amazing to have put this together. People are pretty excited to have the availability just to read some of these articles. I mean, you can't get that information easily anywhere else. And it's all in one place. So Becker's has been huge. Thank you. And kudos to our editorial team, editorial team, great leadership, the two editors-in-chief, Molly Gamble, Laura Durda, not to give them a quick shout-out, but just fantastic, and a lot of great editorial leadership. And then a core mission of being short and concise to the point, you know, giving people what they need to know, a quick sense of what's going on. In the old days, I think of myself as very bright, Harvard lawyer, all this kind of stuff. I write long, interesting articles that I thought was were interesting, but no one would read them. <laughs> and so what we moved towards was the short, concise method of writing and it took a long time to get an editorial team that was willing to get on board with that concept. And we've got great leadership there because what we really moved towards was away from the writing that I used to think I wanted to do and to the writing that our audience actually relates to and wants to read. And it was a fascinating sort of education for me of writing what I thought were very deep, thoughtful articles and nobody would read them. You know, and then we moved towards short, concise, giving people what they need. Here's what's going on in your sector. Here's what's happening. And that's what people want to know. They want to know what's going on here, what's going on there. Do I have to worry? Do I have to think differently? Do I have to do something differently? They're not interested in Scott's long thoughts. Of They're just not. Absolutely. It is an art form to shorten something down. It's way harder than writing. A lo- I'm the same way. I want to write a long thing, a soliloquy about my thoughts, and no one cares. But they, they just want the bullet points, right? <laughs> and those, and we're, in a, we're in a world of sound bites, and that's what people are looking for. It's true, and what happens is we had enough data and analytics. I mean, you know, not the fancy analytics everybody talks about, but you get very clear. You get great clarity of this many people read that article, this many people read that article. I better write more like this. It's very simple. Yeah, yeah. It tells you they tell you what they want, essentially. Exactly. Well, awesome. It's an amazing story, certainly for sure. And then one of the you know one of the questions that I had I had mentioned to you is about this um, executive order that came out from President Trump talking about removing regulatory barriers in states and federally, and it kind of relates um, in part to APRNs and CRNAs like myself, nurse practitioners, uh, physician assistants. How do you see in the future that rolling in to impact the industry? Sure. So it's a great, great question. And and I personally try and completely stay out of this fight that goes on between CRNAs and the medical doctors, the the MD anesthesiologists, and the turf war that's there. The the thing that I will comment on is there is no way around it with a growing population that lives a lot longer, 325 million people and living longer and more people coming out of Medicare every single day. There's no other way to address the shortage of physicians than to allow people to practice the top of their license. It, it doesn't mean that I'm on one side or the other, but there's got to be this movement to allow where you can people practice the top of their license 
because you just, you just, there's just not enough doctors in the country. There's just not. It's a problem that we need to address. It's our nation needs to address. The, the doctors are critically, critically important to the delivery of healthcare. If you ever need a specialist you're in a small town, a large town, it's just very hard to find them. Medical school should be shorter. It should be, there shouldn't be so many weed out types of things for doctors. There's a lot of brilliant people that could be doctors that are weeded out stupidly. Uh, we need more doctors in our country. Doctors are the backbone of the system to go with nurses, to go with the allied health practitioners. So I don't have a side in the issue. I do believe that people need to practice towards the top of their license and that we're going to face horrible shortages in our country. Right. Effectively, we need everyone to do everything they can that they're trained to do to try to mitigate the risk that's coming with so much shortage for everybody. That's about right. There just is not enough physicians, et cetera, in the country in the long run. Access is a problem now. You know, I'm in the middle of the healthcare business, and to actually get the doctor I need to get for a certain thing for a family member, I need to use every connection I have. And I can't even imagine for people that aren't in the middle of the healthcare business. Right, exactly. I mean, I live in a small rural town. Here, there's only so many people. If if I wanted a specialist, I've got to travel to somewhere where I don't know these people. I don't have my connections don't exist there in the way that they might here. And so it it definitely becomes complicated. Access is a huge deal. No, hundred percent. And when you're looking down the road of all the, all this time you've spent looking in healthcare, the healthcare industry, dealing with Beckers, where do you see us heading? in the next five years to 10 years with surgical services in general in the healthcare system. Do you think this is going to end up in a bundled care, Medicare for all, something to- totally different? Right. So it's a great question. There's three different sort of core options people talk about. They talk about Medicare for all, they talk about a public option, and they talk about the free market. And, and so let me start with the free market is half a thing, half not a thing. And what I mean by that is, the percentage of care provided by Medicare and Medicaid is no matter how you look at it, getting to be a bigger and bigger percentage, regardless of Medicare for all or a public option. 40, 50% of all care is provided through Medicare and Medicaid now, and it's just simply going to grow given the aging population. So, so we're, we're no, I, do I believe in health savings account, consumerism, transparency? Absolutely. But do I believe that the entire healthcare is going to be a free market? It's not now and can't be. It's a highly regulated industry that the government pays for half of it already. So then you end up so saying, okay, you could have a bifurcated free market. We're never going back to a true free market. It's just not happening. We're, we're never not going to have Medicare and Medicaid at this point, at least my perception. So then you look at public option and some of the other issues, like, for example, whether you hate President Obama, love President Obama, Everybody agrees they want to be able to get care regardless of pre-existing conditions. There's certain things Republicans, Democrats, poor and rich, whatever ethnicity you are, people want. That's one of them. The other thing that I think people uniformly or, or ultimately want is some sort of public option. Um, and maybe the public option is a, you know, it, 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 it certainly is something that's wanted by the wealthy and the poor. They're rich and they're not rich. People want an option. They don't want to be held hostage by an insurance company. We're just an insurance company. They're only choices. And so at, at some point, I assume those two platforms, and maybe you'll have more consumerism, more transparency, more health savings accounts, more deductibles as well, which already have a lot of that. But at some point, I think you'll have this, these rules on insurance that allow you to get coverage regardless of pre-existing conditions. 
and you'll probably have a public option. Some states are starting to have a public option. It just seems just like you have the post office as opposed to FedEx and UPS. It seems like at the end of the day, you're going to end up with some kind of public option at some point. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, we're at that point where people have insurance, but they've got a $10,000 deductible and they make $30,000 a year. Well, that's not really insurance. That's that's disaster care insurance, effectively. It, that's exactly what it is. And that's okay. That's what insurance was ultimately supposed to be in the, in the, in the, in the, in the first case. But it is. It depends on income. You know, the insurance companies will say to you, we haven't raised your premiums that much. Yes, my premiums are still... 12000 a year for a family of four, et cetera. But what they've done is my deductible has gone from 1000 to 6000 So the reality is my true health care costs have gone up to sixteen, seventy thousand from 12000 Exactly. Exactly. And it's unattainable for some people, frankly, to pay it. A hundred percent. It's just brutal. Yeah, I agree. It is, it's been different for me. I'm Canadian. So originally I came from Canada, moved to the U.S. So to see that, that different type of system has been, it's a stark contrast. Very different from what I'm used to. Yes. And then you get questions of access, quality, and cost. And so, you know, you get into issues. I mean, it's different for a country of 350 million versus 50 million. You get all these different issues that are out there, but you get into very interesting cost, access, and quality issues. You know, quality here is very solid. There's lots of great things in our system. There's lots of fantastic things. But when you end up with a relative with a, you know, a life-threatening disease, you find that there's great care in other countries too, that, that there's places where they're better than us. I mean, there's all kinds of things that are good about our country's healthcare system. And there's places where we need improvements. When you're looking down the road at anesthesia, uh, my profession, what do you see happening within ASCs and hospitals down the road in the future? How do you see that whole thing changing? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a great, great question. It's a fascinating question. I mean, certainly you see this great movement towards outpatient surgery, that's begun and continues to begin and continues to push forward. And there's just more and more cases on outpatient. Now, of those cases that move outpatient, some of them move to physician offices, some of them move to surgery centers, some of them move to hospital outpatient departments. So it's not as though there's a great movement to outpatient and they're all flooding surgery centers. Surgery centers this past year are actually up in terms of total numbers of surgery centers, total numbers of procedures, but it's not, it's not 12%, it's a couple percent. And so you continue to see this movement but it, it, it's bifurcated between hospitals, surgery centers, and really, I shouldn't say bifurcated. It's more than that in, in practice offices. Absolutely. There's some, there's some big shifts changing. And, uh, you know, you're certainly seeing more surgery centers open. And I think there seems to be a trend toward HOPDs or hospital outpatient departments shifting toward the ASC side, transitioning to ASCs. Have you been seeing a lot of that? I've read a few things on Becker's about uh, HOPDs shifting to ASCs. Is that something that you've, you've been seeing? We don't see that much of it. We see some of that. I mean, HOPDs still get paid twice as much as surgery centers get paid for about the same procedure. All kinds of historical reasons for that. The MedTech CMS goal is to pay surgery centers enough that cases migrate out of hospitals to surgery centers, but not so much that there's excess profit left over. And so I don't know where those numbers will end up, um, you know, in, in hospitals. Oh, trying to, there's some building of surgeries by hospitals, but they're also trying to keep the reimbursement they get in the hospital outpatient department. Right. And th- and that's a lot of money. And Medicare pays, like you said, about twice as much for the same procedure in HOPD versus an ASC. And at some point you would expect the government will be looking to change that. If they can do it cheaper in ASC, overall cost savings, more efficiency, assumably, then will there be a push to 
decrease HOPD reimbursement? Well, and, th- and this is the great question. And, and of course, the hospital systems are very, very important to our country's infrastructure. They're the biggest employer in lots of places. There's lots of huge pauses about what the big hospital and health systems do. And so it's a very cautious political game between how you work through the politics of pushing cases out of hospitals while sustaining our hospitals that do still do a huge amount of work to take care of their 325 million people. So it's, it's, it's a great political balance. Right. And you're not seeing those privately owned ASCs taking all the no-pay patients or the, doing all the indigent care that the hospital is going to do. It just is the reality of their different businesses. And some are for-profit businesses, some are not-for-profit businesses. And the hospitals need some margin to keep on doing what they do. And what they do is critical. You could bash them all you want, but when you have a relative that needs hospital care, we want them to be around. Exactly. You want that place to be there. And we want it to be good. We want it to be good at what it does. Exactly. Not just there. Yeah, that's a good point. So now as we're moving forward, you know, ASCs obviously privately owned are are for surgeons, physicians as a group are attractive because, you know, they can get a piece of the facility fee. It's good business. You know, they, they are incentivized then to do more cases there. So overall, the model works pretty well. And we have a couple of surgery center contracts and we see that, you know, surgeons are, are, are running. They're trying to make it happen. Is there a way that hospitals can structure an HOPD in a manner that will have that same thing? Because, you know, if you're a physician and you can get a piece of this facility fee and you're doing a lot of cases in an ASC, but then you want to get involved in this HOPD right now, you can't. So how do you attract those people and keep them at the hospital? Yeah, there, there's yeah, there's there's two or three questions on that that are there. So so one, it's very hard for hospitals to legitimately give physicians part of the money that comes from the HOPD. It's just very hard to do it legitimately. People try all kinds of different things, and there's variation. But at the end of the day, it's hard to duplicate what you have in a surgery center economically. The other big problem is it's not just economic; it's clinical as well, and it's convenient as well. You hear. You know, a surgeon is doing seven cases a day, eight cases a day. In the cataract position, it might be 12 cases a day. If he or she has to fight the hospital operating room to do that, he or she now is spending two days doing what they could do in four hours. And so there are huge convenience issues. And in a world where we have shortages of physicians, shortages of allied health practitioners, uh, and, and, and great burnout and great burden, the surgery center provides a, a huge offset to some of those problems. I mean, imagine, you know, you, you do it as a CRNA sometimes. Instead of getting 10 cases done in five hours, you've got something that's gone wrong. You have to be there for 10 hours. You know, and, it, and it, it, it's extremely, it just it adds to stress, exhaustion, everything else. So surgeons will get used to practicing in an environment that they get a relatively good control over and move the schedule along, don't want to go back to hospital, you know, unless they have to. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I think that's absolutely correct. And that's what you hear from them effectively. Now in the bigger picture, do you see healthcare starting to contract a little? One of the things that was different from Canada where I came from is that things are centralized and that saves money, right? Do you think that's coming for us? I noticed um, just reading both on Becker's and, and other resources that a lot of smaller hospitals have closed across the country over the last few years. And so rural facilities kind of like the one I'm at. Do you think that's that we're heading down that road more as a trend decreasing access again? Yeah, I mean it's a great, great question. The um, 
smaller facilities in rural areas, community hospitals and cities, all of these ultimately have to decide what are they going to be great at and what are they not going to do. So as you know, if you're in a rural community, there are two kinds of rural community hospitals. There's those that understand this is what we're doing and we're going to do it great. And there's those that are trying to do too many things. And so the the great example of the rural hospitals trying to do too many things is you could literally sit in a board meeting where none of the board members will take their family members to that hospital for care. You follow me? I do. And, and that is typically a rural hospital that unfortunately, due to today's world, is trying to do too many things. They just can't stamp it. There's not enough physicians. There's not enough staff. There's not enough anything to keep those things going in the right direction. So you will see more and more of this where people travel for more advanced care, for tertiary care, for certain types of things. It, it, it just, the world has become, over the last 50 years, more urban than it was. And it's an unfortunate thing, but it is what it is. I mean, it's almost like in the old days, all these physicians would graduate, or they'd come out of the army, and they'd go anyplace in the country to be in a great community. Now, for a million reasons, you know, family reasons, spouse reasons, all kinds of reasons, they all congregate to the more urban areas. And it's not too different with staff. So you've got a situation where it's very hard for the community hospitals to do what they used to do for a lot of reasons. And so do I see more of a contraction? Probably, yeah, 100%. And then it's not that the country has to pay to do all things in every single place. But it has to make sure those people in our rural communities have access to great care in total. And it's harder. But that's why, you know, what you talked about earlier, practicing the top of your license, remote care, virtual care, and ultimately finding ways to create pathways where there's a great local facility that does X, Y, and Z, but people have the ability to get to a little bit more regional community hospital or center for more challenging or critical care. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's downward economic pressure on healthcare. We're all, we all know that. And ultimately to get, you know, new surgeons, new services at a rural area, you got to pay a premium. I mean, if you could live in Scottsdale, Arizona versus small town, Arizona, where the biggest store is Walmart and make more money down there, why would you come here? <laughs> it's, it, it's a difficult thing to, to manage for these small facilities because they've only got so much resource. It, well, it, yeah, it's not, it's not a, I mean, it's, it's not a value judgment. People are all over the place where they want to live. It's just that if there's a small, small population, the healthcare system doesn't have the resources to put all, to, to recreate all the doctors and everything else in that community. What's your next big thing? What's the next big thing for Becker's? Yeah, no, for Becker's healthcare, our core mission is to strengthen the areas we're in the hospital health system community, the surgery center community, the health IT area, and then the spine community. And, and you know, and we're, we're a big believer and you put 80, 90% of your efforts into what you're doing currently, what's going well, doubling down on that. And then we spend 10, 15% of our time exploring other areas and, and trying to look at those. And, and those are more sort of what I, what I call creative dabbling into either new product lines within those four vertical areas that we're in, or a new vertical area. But but really, 89% of our mission is really focused on making sure we've got six meetings a year. We've been in this for 27 years. 
our businesses never to have a meeting a week, meeting a month. It's really 20 sector a year. We don't really want any more than that. We want to make sure the things that we do, we actually do great. And so it's, it's, it really starts with the 89% of efforts and doubling down on what we're doing. Awesome. Well, I think that's going to serve more people ultimately. And so what last words of wisdom would you want to leave for our listeners out there, the anesthesia listeners and the others that are going to listen to this podcast? What can you, what would you tell them about our industry, healthcare in general? Yeah, no, there's so much. It's such a broad question. What we, what we tell people, the great game in life is to have a plan and stay engaged. And so find your plan, stay engaged. And then again, we always talk about nothing happens without, without great people and great teams. I mean, I look at what you do. You do a magnificent job as a CRNA, and then you do a magnificent job trying to stay in touch with your community and stay engaged in what's going on and know what's happening. And, and that's half the battle right there is know your core, stay engaged, and obviously do things with great people. And, and so it's just a pleasure being on your podcast and visiting with you. Thank you. Oh, I appreciate it, Scott. You've been great. It was fun to talk to you. I mean, we've had some communication in the past, and I've read a lot of your stuff, but uh, just the opportunity to have a discussion back and forth has been amazing. I'm sure people are going to really appreciate it, and thank you for taking time out. I know you're really busy to do this with us, and uh, excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. That's all for this episode of Anesthesia Deconstructed. For more information based on today's discussion, be sure to visit us at anesthesia-deconstructed.com. You'll also gain access to our blogs, editorials, and more resources to keep you updated on the science, politics, and realities of today's medical industry. That's anesthesia-deconstructed.com.